Thanks, heaps. I'm actually a public servant, so the Powerhouse is a uh, design museum and science museum, um, but a lot of the work that I do is about uh, designing systems to work within the public sector environment. Um, I used to be a, a entirely web kind of person, um, but now I'm really quite excited by things more than the, the web itself. And I'm quite interested in the way people shape and the way technologies shape kind of people. So most of my work with my teams in the last, I don't know, you know, couple of years has been about um, new, new forms of um, experience design and using museums as a way of doing experience design across multiple platforms. And uh, coming out of the web environment, I'm very interested in data-informed design. So the way using uh, you know, rapid prototyping and looking at the things people do with our kind of stuff, building better products. Um, and of course, being you know public sector, um, I guess a lot of my uh, things are about designing systems that generate public value, value that exists for many years rather than many months. So I'm not really about marketing, I'm about designing systems that uh, liberate and explore knowledge. Um, so this is what the powerhouse will be like in a couple of months' time, we hope. Um, so we're doing a huge sort of refurbishment, which is kind of exciting. Uh, and kind of scary too, because it's a bit of a building building site now. So this is my office, and maybe you visited it as a kid, because the majority of museum visitors uh, are kids, uh, and I think the powerhouse uh, is uh, is above. 50% in terms of uh, families with little kids, which really, really means a lot of the things that are being uh, sort of designed for have to be tested with little kids as well. Uh, so this is a typical museum visit in these modern uh, times, a lot of craft, craft activities and these sorts of things. Uh, kids still, still come on these school excursions, uh, which you probably remember. Uh, they haven't really changed. They've still got those crazy worksheets you, you get where you run around and you try to answer the uh, seven or eight things that teachers set you off on. Um, but I guess for me, the mission of a museum such as the Powerhouse or similar is really that uh, muse museums are about sort of providing the raw assets for the next kind of generation to explore uh, you know, particular topics. And in the case of the Powerhouse being a design and science museum, uh, the mission really is about you know, providing the raw assets to inspire the next kind of a generation of designers, scientists, uh, tinkerers, and makers. So, of course, as I said, we're you know state government. So um, you might not know, but 76% of the museum's budget comes from the state government. The rest of it comes from you walking in the door. So that's quite a lot of res responsibility to make systems that are more than just a visit experience. Uh, the rest comes from a uh, small amount of donations, uh, visitor services, these sorts of things. Okay, so key audiences, as I've said, you know, children and families, people like you, uh, maybe I've underestimated the age there, older people, and of course people like kind of you who are makers and uh, t uh, tinkerers. So the stuff that I guess my, my teams are known kind of for doing, and this will focus predominantly on the web, uh, this is really teamwork stuff. So we... The core, the core, core, core basis of the di digital teams is really a bit kind of like a small agency. So, uh, four key uh, websites that are run year-round, a bunch of um, collaborative projects that work across many organisations and many other uh, museum collections and uh, other things and parts of, gov parts of government, a lot of experimental projects there, and also here um, some one-off event sites. So this is a mix of doing a lot of stuff in-house, but also uh, spilling off stuff and working with other designers and working with other developers, particularly to de deliver the more uh, commoditized services now. And I guess one of the things that we uh, try to do philosophically is to do as much work in-house as we can that uh, experiments and delivers potential organizational change. And this predominantly for us means working around stuff that focuses on the collection, the thing that makes museums unique is primarily the collection, the stuff that museums have that no one else has. Creating uh, gallery spaces and these kinds of things are really the sort of similar experiences you now find in theme parks and shopping malls. So the really unique museum-y thing is 
is, of course, the collection. And I like uh, this quote from uh, Nick Poole, the CEO of the Collections uh, Trust in the UK, who really captures what museums are about today. So he kind of says the core kind of functional model of a museum has expanded to, in to incorporate publishing, broadcast as, um, as well as the locative experience. So this is, this is really the sense of the museum, not so much as a place, but the uh, mu museum as a platform, a you know, platform for the community and, and a platform for storytelling. Um, and this, of course, uh, in the post-web accord, as I call it, within the, the museum world, means that the museum's exhibit halls are primarily about experiencing stuff. The web and the digital layer is this data, data cloud that floats around the experience and this sort of sense of collective kind of storytelling. So I'm just going to skip forward a couple of slides. You know, just, just this sense of the visit cycle. Um, and, and, and of course, in the museum space, there are, there are a lot of tensions. Museums are kind of crippled in multiple ways. Firstly, the public sectorness tends to, to mean that uh, change is very slow. Uh, but also museums, because they are about this longer-term value and uh, longer-term longer research, means that there is this tension uh, between catering for families and catering for scholars and scholarly research, uh, a tension between putting on big exhibitions and caring and showing coll collections, a tension between this sense of being about a building, uh, politicians love to cut ribbons on new buildings, they're not so excited about cutting a ribbon on a new uh, web platform, for example. Um, also, this sense that should museums be primarily tied to the education or, um, um, sector? Uh, the director of the National Museum the other day wrote an editorial piece in uh, the Oz and said that museums are primarily about education. I don't think that's actually true. I think museums are about inspiring people. They're not about uh, being focused on, uh, in quotes, learning. So there's this tension also between delivering a good experience and deliver, delivering facts. Now, the world is full of many other sources for facts. When I went on a museum visit back in the 1980s, 1970s, you know, you went to the li library and you got out World Book. And the museum was kind of like the physical version of World Book. That's no longer necessary. Um, so I'm kind of excited by this sense of people chancing upon things. And I think that you know, museums do offer that sense that you chance, chance upon um, material, culture, and knowledge that you may not have thought you were interested in. So now, when uh, we design uh, you know, um, exhibit spaces and the like, we're also designing these multi-channel, uh, multi-platform uh, multi experiences. So even an experience like this one, which was about the 1980s, maybe you visited it, maybe you lived um, through, uh, through kind of the 80s, this whole exhibition began with the curator uh, setting up a blog before the exhibition had started. And 50% of the objects that were in that exhibition display were actually uh, crowd, uh, crowdsourced from people who had come, come across the exhibition through its development phase and also uh, during its uh, kind of initial startup when it had, of course, nowadays a Facebook presence and these kinds of things. Of course, then uh, we have this broadcast media that uh, now flows out through YouTube, Twitter, all this sort of stuff. So that's kind of now the standard package for an exhibition in the media space. Um, an exhibition like our, uh, contempor our contemporary art exhibition now, which I'll talk a bit about later, not only has that sort of platform experience, um, but also has different views from different parts of the behind the kind of scenes processes. People are fascinated now by seeing how exhibits are made. So it's no longer just about delivering this black box experience you walk into, you pay your $15, you walk into a, to a museum and it's this magical black box. Now people are fascinated by the behind the kind of scenes, the way kind of things are made. So um, this has also been extending for us into some interesting new, in, new interactive experiences. So I'm just going to talk a little, little bit about this iPad game. This one uh, is in a sustainability exhibit. 
Uh, it's called, uh, the game is called Waterworks, and it was initially spec'd to be put on one of those uh, big-ass uh, kind of tables, you know, as the joke goes, uh, the touch kind of tables. But uh, with uh, kind of prototyping uh, with uh, kids, we found that the big um, tables were not actually very, very good for a multiplayer experience. So we actually uh, de deployed this as an iPad experience across eight iPads, which allows 16 to 20 kids to collaboratively play there. Um, and that's been very popular. I mean, what is more interesting than the game itself is the effect a table of iPads has within a museum space. This is a time lapse of about a, a three-hour three hour period. And you can see the kids come, coming in and they flock around the, the iPad table. Uh, and this is actually pre presenting a bunch of design challenges for the rest of the exhibition space. Because when kind of you have this sort of flocking around a, a kind of particular thing, you need to, to begin to think of ways to redesign the physical layout to encourage people to go to other parts of the exhibition space too. So um, with, these, with these new technologies comes a lot of challenges that, that uh, are really, a, really about the effects of deploying media within gallery spaces. So, um, uh, you know, and, and for us the uh, big success here was that, you know, teachers had come in and said actually that, that game, whilst it had no text explaining what it was or what it was for, was delivering the key mission, which was the difficulty of managing a water supply without actually saying that's what it's about. So as I said, the main focus for me and my areas and where I, where I think the greatest value lies is actually in that unique um, bit of the museum, which is the collection. Now the problem with, with the collection is that only a very small amount is on public show. 6% is ever on public show. And even worse, only about 35% of it is uh, what uh, we call well-described. So we have a lot of widgets. We have a lot of stuff in our kind of collection that has very, very minimal data about it. Uh, we kind of saw that as a bit of a challenge um, about f five years ago. So we also, we also have a difficult collection in that how do you digitise something like a set of flutes? How um, do you digitise a video game? Yeah, and unfortunately, digitisation in uh, the museum space has in the past meant taking a photo of stuff. But if I see these, I'm kind of keen to know what they sound like. Or if I see a video game, I want to play it, right? Um, and as you know, museum direct directors regu regularly say, the biggest expense for museums is not actually putting on exhibits and shows. It's putting on collections. Uh, it's, it's caring and you know, preserving col uh, collections. So in 2004, the um, kind of museum's collection was kind of static. And on the kind of line, it was very, very patchy. And uh, in, the, in uh, the words of Theodore Adorno, uh, the uh, you know, cultural critic, uh, the preservation needs were about the past. Museums are about death. Museums are about the stuff that's dead to us. Now, obviously, in 2004, with the uh, emergence and growth of the, the social web, there was a lot of opportunities to change these objects that were kind of static to more... Um, vital kind of things. So one of the first kind of things we came across was these uh, fabric swatches that one of the curators was quite excited about. We had all these fabric swatches sitting in our collection and designers and you know students would come and ask us to pull them out. So the obvious thing was scan all of um, them and put them up on the web. Easy. Problem is that when these were catalogued, they'd all been catalogued as books. And the students come along and actually what kind of they want to know is I'm looking for the patterns that are floral or the patterns that are all brown. And the curators had catalogued them as a sing single book, an item. So in uh, 2005, we launched the electronic uh, swatch book, which was really our first experiment with uh, social tagging, um, but also about inviting people to come in and, and classify things for us. Um, the other interesting point about this was all of these fabric swatches were out of copyright. So rather than say, hey, look, we're going to put up very low kind of, sort of re resolution ones and maybe you've got to pay a few dollars to grab the print quality ones, we actually just put them up public domain. High kind of resolution, free, download them. 
gigabytes and gigabytes of traffic go out from this every month still. Um, so it's a fabulous resource, and this really was us dipping our um, toes in the water both of uh, social classification and allowing our visitors to tell us about stuff, uh, but also about giving everything away and saying, hey, look, the, the value of the museum's collection is actually when it's used, when other, when other people use it, when other people take it away and do exciting things with it. Uh, so in 2006, we kind of applied that to everything in the collection. So our collection web website that looks really dated now, but uh, at um, the time was kind of exciting, um, is, was, represents 50% of the traffic to our website now. So that's no longer the museum's website being about visiting us. That's important. More people want to know about the stuff they found in their garage than visit us, potentially, and that's what we now find. So everything's up kind of there. The curated statements, uh, class, uh, subject classifications, uh, user tagging, Similar objects, uh, so this makes recommendations of stuff that's similar in our collection. Uh, lots and lots of images, uh, lots and lots of data, uh, measurements, all this sort of stuff. Everything we hold in our uh, catalogue. Um, more importantly, that data is open licensed, so it's Creative Commons licensed, which allows other people to take it away, mix it up with other museum collections, uh, and connect it with other collections. Also, uh, back kind of then, the, one of the kind of slightly more radical things we did was said, actually, we know the majority of this data isn't very good, but we're going to put it up. So we're going to put it up warts and all. And we're going to say why it isn't good. And the, re the reason it isn't good is because the collection data sometimes is very, very old. It's not actually been looked at for maybe 50 years. And if it's 50 years old, the data has been transcribed from a paper record into a computer sy system, possibly in the late 80s. Um, and once kind of we... Uh, did this and freed this up, we found that people really wanted to come and tell us uh, more about the, their collection. And the collection suddenly began to become social. And, you know, we started to really push the, the kind of line that in order to uh, create more public value in the digital space, sharing was critical to it. And as uh, Henry Jenkins at USC says, um, if could you prevent sharing you, you destroy the value as a cultural kind of resource. Now, this is fine for, for commercial organisations, but for public museums, public museums are about promoting the public use of collections. So when kind of this happened, we found some interesting surprises, like in the first six months, a lot of people looked at the most popular thing in our, our kind of collection that had never been on public show, no, uh, no surprise, Delta Goodrum's dress. This is, of course, 2006. So things that we didn't think would be popular actually were. We also found that some of the things we put up had really bad images, and usually we wouldn't have put this up at all because this apparently is a dress. But because we knew, uh, we looked at the, uh, you know, popularity and we um, went and said, oh, wow, this is like the fifth most popular thing. We better re-photograph that. And actually, the, this address looks like that. Uh, so again, putting out the poor quality data allowed us to rethink the things that we, we should re-photograph and prioritise. Similarly, putting up very low-quality data, data like uh, this, uh, which is a collection record of a, of a compass. Um, there's no image. There's a minimal description. So this has actually been copied out of one of those paper books. Um, this, this information, once it is exposed to kind of Google, um, allowed an amateur res researcher who worked as a nurse to discover that this was, in fact, one of the earliest compasses used here. Uh, she uh, called up our curators and said, hey, look, I've got all this research and I think this is actually really, you know, really significant. Uh, our curators check it. A couple of days later, collection records updated, new photographs, fabulous uh, piece of amateur research. And so not only are we... Uh, 
you know, encouraging and generating uh, community feedback and participation. We're also learning from the way things are used. So here's um, a, um, a piece of fashion. This is actually a piece of, uh, you know, Jap Japanese fashion. It's a series of dresses and skirts that fold up to be books, so you can put them in your bookshelf. It's kind of cool. Um, and by looking at the ways people discover and search these objects allow us to uh, catalogue them better. So here we might ask our curators how, um, how kind of do you think people would search for these objects? And they might say, oh, it'll, ob it'll clearly be by its name, the creator, maybe a topic. But in fact, looking at the data sets, we find that these other terms are used. So this is help, um, helping museums rethink the way uh, the general public and also specialists interact and um, work with uh, the uh, data sets, knowledge and collections we create and catalogue. Okay, so uh, some work I was doing a couple of years, years ago was focusing on the way school kids use uh, collections. So obviously when a school kid's doing an assignment on a chair, a furniture you know, student, we would expect the uh, successful use of um, that to, to be them cutting and pasting bits of our data to their, their essay. And of course, you know, rewriting it perhaps, maybe not, but we'll see. So uh, we started to track the bits of our collection records that were the most cut and pasted. So we started to look at um, the, the ways uh, people used uh, sentences and paragraphs from our, from our collection. So this is a series of heat maps generated of uh, the most um, cut and pasted bits of the collection records, which allows us to rethink the way we might order and uh, you know, structure uh, writing and writing about collections. Also by sort of inviting and watching thing, things people do, really cool kind of things happen from fellow nerds. But this example of a comb um, that's been in our collection for a long time. It's, a, it's been well, well catalogued. It's got some uh, subject classifications that allow people to navigate to other combs, other beauty products, other Spanish-related uh, uh, Spanish products in our collection. And uh, one kind of morning I come in and someone's added a tag that happens to be a URL to it. So we follow this URL thinking, oh, look, it's the NLA, the, li the library, and we find that someone has actually connected our collection record to the newspaper article about us collecting that comb in the 50s. Um, and so now suddenly we have a two-way link between the digitised newspaper record and the collection object that sits in the powerhouse collection, uh, which is really cool. Um, and again, we can then data mine this and see that in this collection record, we have the name of the person who took out the patent to manufacture the cellulose that this comb is made of. Uh, and using kind of that name, we can connect that to the books and the patent record in another uh, di uh, digital res resource run by WorldCat, which also knows which kind of libraries that book lies in. So if I'm a researcher, I can now go to the State kind of Library of New South Wales, which is four kilometres from the powerhouse, and pick up the book that is referenced in the collection record. So that's that sense of connecting up collections, um, and that sense of the museum's collection in the digital space having a much, much, much greater presence than it does in those physical exhibits. Um, of course, you know, a couple of years ago I was on the Government 2.0 task force and was quite obsessed about releasing public um, data for other developers to make, uh, make things with. So we gave away the collection not only through our website but also a downloadable zip of it. You can just grab it all in one hit. Then a year kind of later we uh, released an API for it which allows people to make apps with it. Uh, and then uh, Web Direction South, the uh, really great uh, uh, web conference that, that, that's on every year, held a hack day where they uh, basically allowed us to launch our API um, and had a whole lot of hackers there working on other things as well. And people started to make crazy things with our collection, all within uh, about a nine-hour period. So this is a 
chat client that runs in a sort of browser uh, where you uh, run over the collection objects and talk about them in a chat environment. It's really silly, but it's kind of, these are the sorts of uh, things we, we never thought people would do with it. Also, this has meant that our collection can flow to other places, so appearing in library searches, our New Zealand, our, our objects that have come from New Zealand can appear in New Zealand. Uh, library searches and museum searches. Not only that, uh, you know, people run lots of blogs talking about, you know, stamps and chairs and stuff. So let's make a WordPress plugin for them to plug our collection into their blogs. So, so by releasing the contents of their collection under a, um, you know, pretty open license, which which allows people to have confidence to take away and do things with it and make things with it, plus giving them the, the ways and the means to take it away allows some exciting things to happen. So this is uh, someone's old photography blog who has now incorporated very simply without any developer knowledge um, a bunch of our images in, um, in kind of to their blog. So not only that, um, some of the other things we've done in the last couple of months, we launched this uh, uh, dress portal which is a register of things that other that other people hold, not us. This is this only has a very very small amount of things the powerhouse has, but the powerhouse is known for its fashion collection. And so one of the things we figured was good was if we could provide a platform for collectors and small museums, regional museums. Um, to uh, not only learn about cataloging and photographing and, and you know, preserving things from their towns and communities, uh, but also give them a place to kind of store them. Not only that, but to store them in a way that uh, had really fabulous metadata. So it allowed them to catalog things like their great aunt's wedding kind of dress in a museum-like way. Uh, which allows people to do kind of fun um, things like this, which is, uh, this is a timeline tool that allows people to browse these uh, collections. So that's that sort of sense of the museum playing a role in the, the community to allow the community to better catalogue and preserve its own past. So I guess the final part of the collectionness of stuff is how do we make collections more fun? Because they're a bunch of data, right? So they're kind of not really that fun. Um, so I'm kind of quite excited by this notion of making collections playable, and more importantly, you know, play kind of sort of full uh, and I mean enjoyable. So this is a research project from a uh, you know student in the UK um, who's been working with sort of gamifying the boring parts of museum collections, sort of gamifying uh, cataloging. So looking at the ways to create incentives using uh, the API and the data set that we have to build micro games around the process of cataloging connecting up collection records that we haven't connected up. Also in the playful space um, is of course our Flickr work. So we've done a lot of stuff in Flickr and that's mainly because the powerhouse has uh, quite a large set of photographic archives. So we have these great photos of the QVB. This is the QVB just up here, uh, about uh, 1900 I think. Uh, actually a bit earlier than that because it's horse and carts there. Um, so these great archives are uh, digitising these negatives. So in our collection, these are just negatives. So in their raw kind of form, they don't exist in a, I guess, a usable or a viewable way. Um, these have been on our website for years, you know, uh, in, uh, probably since about, you know, 2002, three. Um, and in, you know, 2007, they, they kind of were getting a fair amount of views. They were getting about 30,000 views a year, which was pretty good, uh, we thought, because they, never, because they never go on public show. But, uh, you know, 2008, uh, I kind of was speaking at Web, at sort of web Direction South, and uh, someone from Flickr, George Oates, was also speaking about tagging at, you know, Web Direction South. And George, who at um, the, the time was at Flickr, was saying, hey, Seb, we're actually launching um, this awesome thing called the Commons soon with um, the Library of Congress. Do you guys want to be the first sort of muse museum to put photographs in there? We're like... Oh yeah, we could do that, sure. So, you know, 2008, the Flickr Commons launches, um, and it's really grown to be this great archive of public domain photographs, which is very cool. Um, and so the Powerhouse has been putting all these crazy photos from our collection there, as have many, many other museums and libraries. So we had 30,000 views in, you know, 2007. 
The Flickr Commons goes kind of live. We pour in the same, the same images. In four weeks, those same images that we'd had 30,000 views of in a whole year got 40,000 views in four weeks, right? So, you know, two years in, two and a half million uh, views, a bunch of other photos added. These are, these are uh, you know, predominantly people who would never come across these images otherwise. It's simply because we released those bits of our collection to places where people hang out. And we find that this, of course, is the most popular image, uh, one that we didn't really think was very uh, significant. Uh, it's had 120,000 views alone. Um, other things have happened to it too, but I'll show you that in a minute. We also found that, you know, people kind of, uh, as soon as we started doing uh, this, people would take photos of themselves with these photos in front of the buildings. So obviously the collection, certain parts of a collection, make more sense when, when they are available or repatriated to where they're from, right? So it makes very, very little sense to look at a, look at a photo of a QVB I'm in a museum gallery. It makes a lot more sense to look at it when you're actually in front of the building itself. Um, so, of course, using Flickr, we geocode uh, geo all the images. We create a group and say, hey, look, you guys, uh, go and kind of take photos of, those, of um, those places today and connect those images up. So these communities begin to emerge. And we see a photo actually of just actually down here. This is just down there, a couple of blocks, um, in about 1890, I think. So there was a tram running along here. Uh, and that's how it is today. Uh, and so you can create these nice sort of uh, mergers of the present and the past. Um, again, these make a lot more sense when you are in the spot. Also for us as well, we, we found that digitising these at such high resolution kind of showed that um, there's other things in these images too. Um, not only that, uh, you know, people want to tell us kind of stuff. So this is sort of the famous kind of story that I've told a thousand times. So Mossman Bay Falls was one of the images in our collection. Um, Mossman, from my uh, view of the world, doesn't look a lot like that now. Um, so we were kind of sceptical. Is uh, this the right location? And we weren't doing an exhibition, so we didn't send anybody out to Mossman to have a look. But instead, we just asked on Flickr. So it's kind of hard to see where a waterfall might exist there. Um, so we asked, we said, look, you know, tell us where uh, this image is. Is it really there? Uh, within a few hours, uh, this uh, person has become very uh, familiar with us now and is, is, is one of our great, you know, uh, you know, citizen, you know, volunteers in many ways, Bob Mead, um, contacts us and says here on Flickr, well, actually, I've just done a search and Domain's actually selling a house that in the photos for the house kind of has a waterfall in it, so I think we might have found the place. Um, and there it is. So that's actually where that waterfall is. It's in a private garden now. So that's kind of a cool, cool um, thing. And we've had many, many of these. You know, we will get probably... Uh, we were getting as many as three a month. Now it's about one a month of people finding out new things about our collection simply because we put things where they were and said, hey, look, tell us more. And that's the kind of stuff that's very hard to actually do in a physical museum experience. Uh, of course, um, it's not all about Flickr. So um, as we move on, uh, you know, after a year of sitting in the Commons, we were like, well, actually, people's comments really matter. So uh, using uh, Blurb, we uh, actually published an anthology of those user comments of our first kind of year in the Commons, which is available as a book, print on number demand, of course, uh, which holds all the photos, but none of our curatorial text, only user comments. Uh, edited user comments, of course, or curated user comments. Um, but getting back to this, and this really struck us as something super cool. So as soon as this happened, um, you know, this is back in, you know, 2008, a uh, developer at the National Library, Paul Hagen, saw this and went, hey, well, that's, that's kind of really cool. I can do that for you with Google Maps. So again, because he's got access to our data set, the API of Flickr at the time, he built a very simple mashup. Other people have done explorers. Other people have just pulled, pulled in the data sets themselves to their own sites. One of them um, called Sep Sepia Town in New York got in touch and said, look, um, we kind of want your data set because we think it's really cool, but we reckon your photos aren't in the right sort of spots. And we were like, all right, cool. Uh, uh, well, here it is. Take it away. Here it is as a zip. 
do what you want with it. What they did for us, which was really cool, was they actually went and fixed up the locations for us, sent us back the, the corrected data file, but added an important thing which makes um, a lot of difference. So we have geocoded photographs as points in the ground, like a pin to point in the ground. But when actually I'm trying to align that with, I guess, reality, I need to know the direction the camera person was facing. So they actually went and did um, the compass headings of the uh, photographers for us, which allowed them to do this and connect it with a street view looking the same way but they sent um, that, Im that improved data back to us, which has been kind of valuable for doing AR experiments, because for AR experiments, you need that um, you know, compass heading. So that's kind of where we segue to mobile collection. So obviously now it's no longer necessary to carry around that printed out photo, you can just carry it around on your phone. Uh, again, so, so you know, we've, we've had a mobile site for, a, for ages. Mobile traffic now is uh, more than 10% of the traffic to the museum's website, uh, which, is kind of, which is kind of scary for us, uh, but exciting too. Um, also, we're kind of starting to see people bring these devices, you know, to the museum. So about, you know, two years ago, uh, before, whilst, you know, people still had pretty crappy phones, um, we did some very early experiments with QR codes. So if the tag clouds are the mullets of the net, QR codes are a disaster zone, really, they are. Um, but remember these sort of phones, and we designed systems for, to work on these phones. Um, they did kind of work. The problem was no, no one actually bothered to scan them because scanning was such a pain. So after 2009, when we did this, short, shortly following that, we started to put URLs on things. You know, surely that would make the data cloud little more visible. But unfortunately, the problem with URLs on stuff is they're really subtle. You know, no one really wants to type in a URL, uh, but they scale kind of well. So we're sitting on this huge collection of stuff that works in a mobile site, uh, but we have this problem of QR codes being the only solution to it. That's not, any, not necessarily the case now. So. Um, Fortunately now, uh, we're doing another experiment now. Uh, we're using QR codes for our lace exhibition, uh, which is this contempor contemporary art exhibition. So, so we've been look looking at the ways that um, this might roll out. And of course, being this sort of uh, have, um, having teams that are obsessed with data, uh, we kind of started doing maps of the things that people scan. So we started to go, well, look, actually, let's have a look at the things that people want to find out more about and help use that, uh, that kind of data to uh, recommend people to other things, but also potentially um, to look at the ways people move um, through our physical space doing multiple QR code scanning. Do they actually do that? You know, do we need to prompt people... 30% uh, through an exhibit, hey, do you want to scan another code now? Do you want to find out more about this? What sort of things are necessary to encourage people to use these uh, new tools? So the thing we find, n not surprisingly, uh, this is all up on my blog at enormous resolution. Um, people do a lot of scanning in room kind of one. People do a little, bit of, a little bit of scanning in room two, then it tapers off. But for some odd odd kind of reason in room eight at the end, they start scanning again. So we're really trying to figure out what it is that makes people scan. Because there's a lot of things that our curatorial staff who pulled together this exhibition think are really, really fascinating, but they're not getting scanned at all, whereas things which have pretty good label text are being scanned a lot. So we're really sort of trying to re rethink the way uh, visitors use technology and tools that uh, they bring uh, within our gallery spaces. So this is also part of a pilot we're doing about Wi-Fi tracking uh, that will be built into the app in um, the next couple of weeks. So there, will, there is now also uh, Wi-Fi tracking which allows us to no longer require people to scan the QR codes but to know where people are within the gallery space and deliver them the, the, uh, the sort of additional data um, about uh, the things they're actually looking at. I guess one of the things about that is that we don't know if people actually prefer to actively scan or just passively receive. We will find that out in the next few months. The other thing we get out of this is heat maps 
of our galleries. Where do people stand? Does anyone actually stand in front of that video screen that we, we spent months producing material for? Does anyone ac actually play the interactive that cost $50,000 to make? Does anyone actually do, you know, do these things? Um, so it'll be fascinating to see the kind of results of that. Um, that's a sort of partnership with um, several local tech, uh, technology firms they're actually building it with an API so other people can build it into their own apps rather than this being a specific locked kind of down thing. So the final thing um, is beyond the museum, and I've touched on this a little bit with this sense of the person walking out there. Um, when this happened as well, um, you know, Mob Labs, a local development firm in two, uh, 2009, was doing a lot of experiments with Layar. So they kind of came along and said, hey, look, you guys have got a downloadable data set. It's open. We can kind of do um, kind of things with it. It's geocoded. So we will make for, for you a, uh, a, a layer in layer that allows people to use their cam uh, cameras within their phone to pull up the same images. Um, that did OK. Um, and we actually just ran an AR dev, uh, dev camp with them at uh, the powerhouse a couple of months ago that, ex that, ex that explored some of the changes with AR subsequent to the you know, two, uh, 2009 experiments. And in fact, I got notified of a blog post a teacher had done just a f uh, kind of a few kind of days ago where they'd actually discovered our layer in layer and want wanted to use it to teach. And they wondered why we hadn't done anything more with it since. It's like, well, it was kind of an experiment. So, you know, anyway. Um, also, you know, we've done some partnerships. Uh, this is uh, a thing called China, China Heart. That was a uh, time kind of sensitive location based kind of film, I guess. It was kind of an, um, initially envisaged as a game, but um, subsequently really just became a little mobile kind of story. Um, these kind of things um, are all about experimenting with ways people might take and use it to be inspired by museum content outside of that visit uh, and really trying to figure out ways to make that more attractive and appealing, um, it's kind of tricky. So again, you know, we've gone from doing experiments with AR to also just reverting back to building simple mobile tours. You know, these kinds of things, sometimes the technology is not, you know, beneficial being at the sort of bleeding edge is not where you want to be. You actually want to just be where your users and visitors are. So we're doing sort of a multiplicity of experiments. And I think the main things, I guess, that we do um, is that data-informed approach and that sense of uh, looking at the things people do and, it, and developing better products and services based on that, but also that um, sense of trying as hard as possible to give everything away. I, mean, I think that's what public, you know, public sort of museums are about um, and um, uh, connecting collections up, connecting museums up and connecting experiences up. So I've spoken for a long time, so... Um, Okay, thanks, bye, but um, ask me questions because uh, that would be awesome. Cool. Hey, thanks, that was great. Um, I have one question with the tags, yeah. whether, especially for the things like, um, I guess, not just prints, but textures and materials, if there's a feels like tag for all the people that are never going to be able we, to interact with the object. That would be, you know, fantastic. And we, uh, when sort of we were experimenting with tagging, hadn't created structured uh, tagging, but I think there's a huge opportunity for people to do kind of structured tags. And that's sort of where, uh, you know, this question about, you know, asking people to tag about particular qualities of things like feels like, sounds kind of like, those are really, really, really ripe for um, designing mini games around. Um, one of the things we found with the Swatch book in 2005 was that it had a relatively tightly defined user community, so designers and fabric people. So the sort of tags they added were in their sort of language domain, 
once uh, we applied that to the whole museum collection, you start to attract a much, much broader audience and you don't have that kind of structure around the tags that naturally forms because you've got people tagging stamps as well as people tagging trains as well as people tagging furniture and garments. And so the sort of uh, our language differences are very, very wide. So I think there's a huge kind of great opportunity for you know, structured tagging, um, but it is about creating um, systems that, that reward that and, and, and actually make it fun. Because at the end of the day, uh, tagging the thing once is kind of all right. Tagging 50 things is, gets to be a bit of a pain, particularly if they aren't things you want to use yourself. I've seen a lot of people deploy tagging systems, you know, I mean, they're really everywhere now. Um, but not many people have dealt with the, in, the sort of incentives for tagging. The most successful tagging projects are ones where you're tagging your own things, like your own photos, because it allows you to find kind of them better. When sort of you apply that to a museum space or a library space or really uh, you know, General Pants' web website. What is my incentive for tagging your stuff? You have to build that in. So, you know, really trying to experiment with those is, is, is something really critical for people who want to explore that more to do. Hi, thanks for that. That was great. I've got a couple of questions, if I can. Firstly, with, well, they're both regarding tags as well. Yep. Do tags help to perpetuate the same popular items? So does popularity just the same items stay popular because of tagging? And also, does the tag list get unwieldy over time? Is there such a thing as too many tags? Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think uh, around, you know, tagging sort of being a sort of popularity contest, I think within our sort of stuff, because, again, we've had that very sort of diverse audience coming to our materials, uh, no, it hasn't been the, the, the case. We've found a lot of things that are un underpopular but have a very niche appeal, have some of the best quality tags. Uh, again, it's about, you know, at a scale of a museum collection, um, there's such a diversity there that you're attracting so many different uh, user groups and user personas coming into it. They all bring their own um, languages and methods and intentions. Um, and actually, we've had a scale issue around that. And I think that's something, nowadays, I'm not such a fan of that un kind of, you know, structured tagging because I don't think it adds a lot of um, a lot of additional value. One of the things we've done, uh, you know, parallel to this, which has generated a lot more value, has been using uh, search terms as tags. So if I search for blue shirt and I click on Damien's blue shirt, um, possibly automatically tagging that or vo voting up the term blue shirt is better than asking someone to go and actually intentionally tag that as a blue um, as a blue shirt so that's so we've got a bit of so we've got a lot more value out of that which is sort of um, uh, you know frictionless tagging it's tagging that doesn't require the user to do anything it's just you know this is sort of what you know Google does when you uh, search and browse lots and lots of web websites you're actually telling you know google the things you like and the way you describe those sorts of things so we've applied that within a search uh, sort of framework as well we've got a lot more value out of that but i do think the first question i got around the structured tags there's heaps and heaps of value there um, so it's about again experimenting with those systems and at times i think if we didn't have so many um, exhibits that we had in our physical museum, we could spend a lot more time building amazing experiences around the stuff that isn't on show. Um, second question, I kind of answered that, yeah? Sort of, okay, yeah. What, what, what kind of movements are you making to get um, direct feeds into schools outside of the museum as opposed to just being websites? Is there anything happening with like National Broadband Network? That yeah, you so the, nas um, the National Broadband Network, uh, you know, a lot of museums are trialing uh, direct uh, incursion visits. So instead of you know sticking all your kids on a bus and coming into you know the museum, trialing a video conference visit uh, with a roving camera and a broadband connection, that's completely possible um, now. And I think we'll see a lot more of that automated visitation coming in the future. Of course, um, we need to figure out ways to enhance that visit because. 
if you're not physically in the museum space and the physical museum experience has been designed about being physically present, that screen, that screen mediated visit is not satisfactory. And in many ways, it is worse quality than using a very good website to browse the same kind of stuff. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, challenges around that and there's great opportunities for people to design better remote visitation experiences and potentially redesigning museum galleries to make remote visitation experiences better. So if you actually know that you know 20% of your visitation to, to an exhibit will be through some remote camera experience, you might design everything, the layout, the labels, uh, the flow in a different way. And you might also change the, the complementary uh, digital experience as well, so it was in, so it is even more enhanced. Then also I think there's good opportunities to have, I guess, multiplayer or multi-school remote visitation experiences where kids from one kind of school can speak to another school who are also visiting the same exhibition. That's amazing stuff. I mean, that's sort of where the National Broadband Network with its synchronous data becomes really, really valuable because the up kind of loads become the same as the downloads. So amazing possibilities there. Of course, you know, this requires a lot of thinking in the museum world to adjust to redesigning for people who aren't paying that admission charge or aren't physically experiencing a space. And this, I think, is where, you know, a lot of the work that we and others are doing around tracking that and looking at the, the things people actually do rather than the things we think, we think people do is really critical. Hello again. Um, regarding the staff of the museum, yeah. did the results speak for themselves or did you have to have an education campaign internally to encourage the staff and curators to adopt um, these practices to make them feel good about having an open collection online? Yeah, look, this has been a seven-year project, you know, this has been going for years now and it's been a slow and quite incremental change. Um, but it's one that I think, you know, uh, one of the things we've found with, particularly with the open nature of the collection and that warts and all approach is that if kind of you can show enough positive examples, they really do reduce the inherent risk aversion. Uh, this again falls back not only to the museum as a knowledge kind of structure, which is quite conservative by nature, but also the public sector nature of this too, that opening up data, these kinds of things are not uh, risky. And I think um, one of the unique things about the powerhouse and you know, several other museums worldwide has been that we've been able to encourage and um, push uh, a more risky approach and doing little pilots and documenting the pilots and more importantly, sharing the results. And I think sharing the results uh, to other people has been really, really valuable. I mean, there's been so many times when we've published academic papers or we've done things on the blogs uh, or commented on someone else's blog with our own data and, and they have actually come and, or, or other people in the community, indeed many communities, have come up and said, hey, actually, you, sh you should try out this or don't kind of give up on QR, QR codes. Why don't you put, that, put the scanner into the app? There are lots and lots of different things that come out of that openness and share sharing that is really critical. So that, that is a, a philosophy um, is, is, has been really, really valuable. But it's incremental steps. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it has helped that the collection has been the unique thing about any, um, about any museum. So if you can make a change with the collection, you will get a whole range of flow-on uh, sort of results. If you make a change with an exhibition, that's great. But then the next exhibition comes along and you start again. So, you know, it's that sense of picking off the battles that are actually at the core of what your organization's about. If your, your organization's unique selling point is the collection, do it with the collection. If, if your government organization is about you know, medical records, don't skirt around the other things, hit the medical records, you know, whatever it might be. You know, hit the thing that actually is, matters. <laughs>